0: our constitution on americaswebradio.com.
1: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, how to feel well emotionally and how to cope better with stress, how to cure yourself of bad habits, and all that with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry while trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and also trying to better educate the general public about psychiatric illness and treatment. And welcome again to the show. This is the Wednesday, August 27th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope you've been feeling well lately. We're going to start the show off with something that I think strikes to the very heart of why I do the show, which is that there's just too much in the way of myths and misconception about psychiatric illness. Uh, and as we unfortunately saw a couple of weeks ago with the suicide of Robin Williams and all the ignorant and ugly things that were said uh, about suicide after uh, that incident, we learned there's still a lot of ignorance and still a lot of stigma and lack of understanding about psychiatric illness. Uh, there were people making negative comments instead of showing compassion for how much tremendous pain he must have been in. Uh, so there really needs to be more education, more understanding about mental illness and how real and how devastating it can be, and uh, the fact that it is really an illness altogether. Uh, there are still some people who Choose not to believe, so to speak, that mental illness is real as if it were subject to anyone's individual belief or not, which, you know, the very notion is preposterous, of course. Uh, so this article and others like it gives us solid evidence, more solid evidence, and there's already so much, but even more solid evidence for the physical basis of psychiatric illness. Scientists have been studying the link between the immune system and mental illness for many decades, and I came across this very recent article that is documenting further progress in this area. Now, they looked at children with high everyday levels of a protein released into the blood in response to infection. And these children are at greater risk of developing depression and psychosis later on in life, in adulthood. And again, this new research is suggesting a role for the immune system in the development of mental illness. This study was published in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry, And it indicates that mental illness and chronic physical illness, such as coronary heart disease and type 2 diabetes, may share common biological mechanisms. Let's review that point again. Common biological mechanisms that may cause heart disease, diabetes, and depression. When we're exposed to an infection, for example, an influenza virus or a common stomach bug our immune system fights back to control and remove the infection during this process immune cells flood the bloodstream with proteins inflammatory proteins such as interleukin 6 or IL6 a telltale <clears throat> excuse me a telltale marker of infection in the blood However, even when we are healthy, our bodies carry trace levels of these proteins, and they call them inflammatory markers, and they rise exponentially in response to infection. Now, researchers have carried out the first ever longitudinal study. That means one that follows the same group of people over a long period of time to examine the link between these inflammatory markers in childhood and the development of subsequent mental illness. A team of scientists studied a sample of 4,500 individuals taking blood samples at age 9 and following up at age 18 to see if they had experienced episodes of depression or psychosis. The team divided the individuals into three groups depending on whether their everyday levels of IL-6 were low, medium, or high. They found that those children in the high-level group were nearly two times more likely to have experienced depression or psychosis than those in the low-level IL-6 group. Our immune system acts like a thermostat turned down low most of the time, but cranked up when we have an infection. In some people, this thermostat is always set slightly higher, behaving as if they have a persistent low-level infection. These people appear to be at a higher risk of developing depression and psychosis. Now, it may be somewhat too early to say whether this association is causal and researchers are carrying out additional studies to examine this association further. The research indicates that chronic physical illness such as coronary heart disease and type 2 diabetes may share a common mechanism with mental illness. People with depression and schizophrenia are known to have a much higher risk of developing heart disease and diabetes, and elevated levels of IL-6 have previously been shown to increase the risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes. So this is what they're talking about when they're saying a common biological mechanism underlying heart disease, diabetes, and depression. It's elevated levels of the inflammatory marker IL-6 in the blood. Now, inflammation may be the common mechanism that influences both our physical and mental health. It is possible that early life adversity and stress lead to persistent increases in levels of IL-6 and other inflammatory markers in our body which in turn increase the risk of a number of chronic, physical, and mental illnesses. Low birth weight, which is a marker of impaired fetal development, is associated with increased everyday levels of inflammatory markers, as well as greater risks of heart disease, diabetes, depression, and schizophrenia in adults. This potential common mechanism could help explain why physical exercise and diet, classic ways of reducing risk of heart disease, for example, are also thought to improve mood and help depression. The research also hints at interesting ways of potentially treating illnesses such as depression, anti-inflammatory drugs, Treatment with anti-inflammatory agents leads to levels of inflammatory markers falling to normal. Previous research has suggested that anti-inflammatory drugs, such as aspirin, used in conjunction with antipsychotic treatments may be more effective than just the antipsychotics themselves. A multi-center trial is currently underway into whether the antibiotic Minocycline, used for the treatment of acne, can be used to treat lack of enjoyment, social withdrawal, apathy, and other so-called negative symptoms in schizophrenia. Minocycline is able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, a highly selective permeability barrier, which protects the central nervous system from potentially harmful substances circulating in our blood. This blood-brain barrier is also at the center of a potential puzzle raised by research such as that that we're discussing now. How can the immune system have an effect on the brain when many of these inflammatory markers and antibodies cannot penetrate this barrier? Studies in mice suggest that the answer may lie in the vagus nerve, which connects the brain to the abdomen. When activated by inflammatory markers in the gut, it sends a signal to the brain where immune cells produce proteins such as IL-6 leading to increased metabolism and therefore decreased levels of serotonin in the brain. Similarly, The signals trigger an increase in toxic chemicals such as nitric oxide, quinolonic acid, and kynurenic acid, which are bad for the functioning of nerve cells. This is a very interesting and provocative idea in my opinion because it's well known that obesity, especially abdominal obesity, will result in increased circulatory levels of these inflammatory markers, and we also know that there is a correlation between obesity and depression, and that could be your link right there. Uh, the inflammatory markers, are an increased um, in in abdominal obesity, uh, they then affect the vagus nerve, which sends signals to the brain, uh, producing these inflammatory proteins and reducing levels uh, of important brain hormones and increasing blood levels of toxins uh, that affect brain cells in a negative way. Uh, It accounts for why being obese increases the risk of depression. It accounts for why interventions such as weight loss will decrease the incidence of depression. Now, before you get too excited... Treatments for mood disorders, including anti-inflammatory drugs and that antibiotic minocycline, I promise you they are not ready for prime time. So uh, don't run out and ask your doctor for a prescription of either one. I'll be sure to bring you more updates if uh, the gold standard double-blind placebo-controlled studies to test these treatments have been done. Well, that brings us to our first commercial break on tonight's show. Be right back after that with more mental health news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
2: Nine Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Come on. Follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for.
0: Follow me and breathe easy.
2: Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for.
0: Follow me and breathe easy. This
2: proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day. And it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again.
0: Follow me and breathe easy.
2: Follow Sniffles.com.
1: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com
0: and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on
1: AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
3: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Now, an important sobering finding from a recent study shows that poor sleep quality increases the risk of suicide for older adults. Older adults suffering from sleep disturbances are more likely to die by suicide than well-rested adults, according to a new study. Sleep disturbances are highly treatable. So this is an important finding. It was published August 13th in, again, the Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. Older adults have disproportionately higher rates of suicide risk compared to other age groups, making suicide prevention in elderly populations a pressing public health challenge. Using data from an epidemiological study of 14,456 adults, age 65 and older, it's a pretty good sample size there, researchers compared the sleep quality of 20 of them who died by suicide with the sleep patterns of 400 similar individuals over a 10-year period. That 10-year study period is also uh, quite a good period of data collection much, much longer than normal. Now, the study found that participants reporting poor sleep had a 1.4 times greater chance of death by suicide within a 10-year period than participants who reported sleeping well. The study confirmed the relationship between depression and suicide risk while also assessing poor sleep as an independent risk factor. The findings suggest that poor sleep quality may serve as a standalone risk factor for late-life suicide. Surprisingly, the study found that when comparing the two risk factors, poor sleep predicted risk better than depressive symptoms. The combination of poor sleep and depressed mood was the strongest predictor of suicide risk. Suicide is the outcome of multiple, often interacting, biological, psychological, and social risk factors. Disturbed sleep stands apart as a risk factor and warning sign in that it may be undone, which highlights its importance as a screening tool and potential treatment target. In suicide prevention. Two studies now underway testing the effectiveness of an insomnia treatment for the prevention of depression and suicidal behaviors. Most of the studies suicide victims were white men, which reflects a group at heightened risk for suicide in the general population. Additional research Hopefully, we'll see if the correlation between disturbed sleep and suicide risk extends to women, minorities, and younger adults or teenagers. Now, while I agree this is a very important finding, I hope some people aren't going to take this and conclude that, well, if I just take people who aren't sleeping well and give them sleeping pills, uh, then they'll sleep better and that will prevent them from committing suicide. It's not that simple, it's not that easy, and sleeping pills are not the best solution to disturbed sleep. Uh, They're potentially addictive, uh, they have potentially very severe side effects, such as memory impairment, sleepwalking, sleep driving, and rebound insomnia. It turns out that cognitive behavioral therapy has a much more successful track record and certainly is infinitely much safer in terms of treating insomnia compared to uh, sleep medications. Now this next study I've read about seems extremely exciting, Um, but again we have to temper the excitement that the title of the article promises, New Study Suggests Treatment Possibility for Autism. Now. The, if you don't know anyone whose family has been affected by autism, this is just devastating to parents uh, when their children uh, are autistic. And to this date, we have really no medical treatment per se. Uh, the best treatments are behavioral, uh, restorative therapies, physical therapies, social therapy, uh, social skills therapy, um, occupational therapy, and the fact that a potential medical treatment is found would just be an unbelievable breakthrough. Uh, but again, it's really just a very, very early stage. A lot more work needs to be done before this can be brought to fruition, but I wanted to tell you about it anyway because uh, it is rather an exciting development. Now, in terms of autism, in their brain, people with autism have too many synapses. Now, a synapse is the connection, the very, very small gap between brain cells. And this is a mechanism for uh, brain cells sending and receiving signals and propagating that signal through pathways in the brain. Now, according to a new study, this may point to a treatment for autism, these extra synapses in the brains of patients with autism are not the result of overproduction, but rather of failure in the normal process of discarding old and degraded cells. That is a normal part of brain development. Researchers at New York University. Uh, of Columbia were able to reestablish the brain's pruning mechanism in mice that were genetically modified to simulate autism. To do it, they used a drug called rapamycin to block a protein called mTOR, which in autistic patients, this protein just goes hyperactive and it blocks the brain's natural ability to call synapses. The researchers saw a reduction in typical autistic behaviors in the mice, this is, such as avoiding contact with others. Now, these findings were published this past week in the journal Neuron. They were able to treat the mice after the disease had appeared. This is the most exciting development, and it's absolutely crucial Because autism does not become apparent at birth, it only becomes apparent much later in childhood, so you need a treatment that works after the diagnosis is made. Now, if they were correct in this research, they should be able to have quite effective treatment even after diagnosis. Now, it turns out most recent information indicates 1 in 68 U.S. children is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. This is according to the most recent government estimates we have, 1 in 68 kids. Newborn brains produce an enormous quantity of synapses as they grow, but later in childhood and adolescence, the brain naturally will prune away a lot of these connections to allow different sections of the brain to develop without being overwhelmed in autism this natural pruning process is interfered with and you know that's why the autism symptoms develop Uh, these kids are easily overwhelmed by too many stimuli not able to process them not able to make the appropriate connections between different parts of their brain. Now, researchers also discovered biomarkers and proteins in the brains of children and teenagers with autism, indicating that this pruning mechanism wasn't functioning normally. If it were possible to adapt rapamycin to treat some autistic patients, uh... It could potentially lessen the sometimes debilitating or actually often debilitating symptoms. But the drug in its current form, which is in testing as a treatment for tuberous sclerosis, which is a rare genetic disorder often associated with autism, uh, it is also an immunosuppressant and therefore it may not be ideal as a long-term treatment especially for children and teenagers whose bodies are still developing. Regardless, the discovery that this drug can have this effect may lead to other drugs that can affect this protein called mTOR, stop it from being hyperactive, and therefore allow the brain to naturally uh, do this pruning, to allow the brain to form appropriate connections between different areas, and prevent someone from being easily overwhelmed with relatively few stimuli. Again, an important, exciting development because right now there's really no treatment for the defect that causes autism. All doctors do is try to prescribe medicine to alleviate the symptoms it causes, and honestly, the success is mixed and theft. Uh, you have a couple of antipsychotic drugs that are prescribed to calm down the agitation and sometimes aggressive behavior that uh, takes place in autism. On <clears throat> other parts of the autism spectrum, antidepressants are often prescribed uh, also to help with behavior, but uh, often to help with anxiety sometimes depression or sometimes to help with compulsive behaviors. And quite typically, since <clears throat> these kids have attention problems, uh, stimulants that we know promote uh, better attention and focus uh, that are prescribed for kids with ADHD are also often prescribed to kids on the autism spectrum to help them to be better able to focus. Uh, So at the moment, this will not provide any direct help to families who have children who are autistic, but uh, it is a very hopeful sign. It points to a very hopeful direction in terms of further research that may lead to some promising developments relatively soon. Again, I will keep you informed as uh, new information is put out there. And with that, we're going to take our next commercial break here on Psychiatry Today, and we'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
2: Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio.
1: Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights.
3: Join me on Wednesday mornings from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock when we talk about more than medicine. It's now about staying healthy, but it's about the strategy to do so. Join me on Medicine on Call. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. This next item on the show really pertains to those of you who are in the sandwich generation, meaning you've, you're a grown adult, maybe middle-aged, probably middle-aged. You're caring for your own children and getting them ready to be launched into the world and hopefully take care of themselves. And you find yourself also taking care of your aging parents who are increasingly less and less able to care for themselves and especially those who have developed dementia and require just about full time care, if not completely full time care. We already know that caregiver stress is a very serious problem. Caregiver stress, caregiver depression, uh, these things can happen when trying to care for your elderly parent with dementia. Now, <clears throat> It makes sense that putting such a person into adult daycare for a part of the time would ease the stress on the care to get, caregiver, uh, and certainly it does. Now, you know, we're, t- we're going to talk about some research that specifically looked at the issue, but of course, this topic raises a couple of questions right off the bat before we even get into that. Uh, this assumes that the caregiver and uh, the person being cared for have the financial means to access adult daycare. This assumes that adult daycare is available in their community, and it assumes that the caregiver is willing to put their parent into such a setting. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, barring all those parameters, let's uh, examine what research was found. The stress of caring for a family member with dementia certainly may take a toll on the health over time of the caregiver, but a new study suggests that even just one day off can shift caregivers' stress levels back toward normal. If that were consistently true, that would mean that there wouldn't be the need for frequent or full-time adult daycare, just one day off once in a while. This is sometimes called respite care, the respite being for the caregiver. Now, based on measurements of the stress hormone cortisol, researchers found that caregivers had healthier stress responses on days when the dementia patient went to adult daycare. Even anticipation of the day off had an effect on cortisol levels. So the study reinforces the notion that caregivers need support, and sometimes that support means sharing the care. Sharing the care means the caregiver has some time off, and that's important because the caregiver's health is critical to the care receiver's health. If the caregiver is comfortable, at ease, calm, in good spirits, that's going to carry over to the person who's receiving the care. And conversely, if the caregiver is upset, that person with dementia is going to be affected by that. The study was published in the journal The Gerontologist. Interventions such as adult daycare services that provide partial relief from daily stressors may help caregivers provide care longer while reducing their risk of illness. Past studies have documented the stress that caregivers feel and their sense of relief when they get a break from caregiving. Cortisol, as you know, is a stress hormone. It supports the fight-or-flight response, but when it's levels are elevated uh, excessively and frequently, of course, we know it does damage. Now, we, we normally have some of it in our system. Normally, its levels are highest about an hour after we wake up and then decline over the rest of the day. But in times of stress, cortisol levels may soar and remain abnormally high, or levels may eventually flatten out after being too elevated for too long. Unhealthy cortisol levels and patterns of these levels have been linked to depression and cognitive problems, as well as to suppressed immune responses and other illnesses. To measure the potential health effects of giving caregivers a break, researchers included 158 people caring for a family member with dementia who used an adult daycare service at least twice a week. For eight days, caregivers reported their stressful events and experiences and their moods by telephone once daily and collected their own saliva samples five times a day to be tested for cortisol. In general, the researchers found that caregivers had fewer care-related stressors and more positive experiences on the days their loved ones were at adult daycare, but they did experience a little more stress not related to caregiving. However, looking at daily fluctuation in cortisol levels, the study team found improved patterns on days when daycare was used. Among people whose levels were usually high, Cortisol fell, and among people with the flattened burnout pattern, that is, abnormally low after being raised for too long, cortisol levels returned to a more normal variation. In addition, researchers found that better cortisol regulation began in the morning, even before the study participants' loved one left for the day. Caregivers may look forward to adult daycare service days and begin the days with a greater focus on getting through their morning routine. Researchers cannot say how long the changes last or their benefit, if any, over the long term. The study may not apply to everyone because it focused on a selected sample of people who have already found the need to bring their family member with dementia into some kind of care setting. It's important to realize that there are lots of dementia caregivers who don't need any assistance, who manage remarkably well. That may be because the person they're taking care of doesn't manifest the behavioral problems that maybe a majority of dementia patients do, or because the caregivers have found ways to minimize stress. Some families just get this and they have multiple individuals who provide support so it just works without any outside support. Regardless I would encourage those people who are caregivers for an aging parent with dementia or other relative with dementia to look into whether Adult daycare is available in their community and they, sh- they will very well be surprised to find, no, I don't have to leave them every single day. You just leave them once in a while, uh, go to the facility with, with your loved one, look around, uh, see how, uh, the place is kept. Um, is it, is it clean? Do the other people there look like they're well cared for, uh, making sure that, um, you know, they're well cared for in terms of cleanliness and they're properly, uh, toileted and cleaned up if need be. Uh, if they're taking meals, uh, is the food appropriately prepared and served and so on. See for yourself. And, uh, Again, you know your loved one. I'm sure is not going to want to stay there very often or very long. But as little as one day a week, if it really, really helps the caregiver feel better, then that, in turn, is bound to benefit the care receiver. Uh, so there you have it. Look into respite care uh, at your in your community if there is uh, adult care facilities available. Next up on Psychiatry Today, um, <clears throat> this article seemed to uh, be making the rounds, and I thought, well, let me take a look at what it's talking about. Um, I haven't addressed many articles about uh, relationships and marital relationships in a while. So this one that said bigger weddings and fewer partners and less sliding are all linked to better marriages. Now that caught my eye, so let's let's see what this has to say and uh, see if it makes sense, see if we buy its conclusions. Well, it says the more people who attend your wedding to share in the launch of your marriage, the better the chances you'll be happily married years down the road. And somewhat counterintuitively, the more relationships you had prior to your marriage, the less likely you are to report a high-quality marriage. Now, my first reaction to this was, you mean to say that small weddings portend an unsuccessful marriage? That doesn't seem right or fair to conclude that, does it? Well, but that's just one of these two key findings in a new report called Before I Do, What Do Premarital Experiences Have to Do with marital quality among today's young adults. This came from the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. The study challenges the idea that, quote, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In other words, the general notion that what happens in one's younger years before marriage stays there and doesn't impact the remainder of one's life. According to the research, it certainly does. How people conduct their romantic lives before they tie the knot is linked to their odds of having happy marriages. This is argued by the study's authors. They say past experiences, especially when it comes to love, sex, and children, are associated with future marital quality. They say those who have had more romantic experiences, for example, more sexual or cohabiting partners, are less likely to forge a high-quality marriage than those with a less complex romantic history. Raising children from prior relationships can add stress to a marriage. For women, but not for men, having had a child in a prior relationship was associated, on average, with lower marital quality all right we'll take a more close look at their research findings and discuss them when we come back you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott be right back after this break did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes you can listen to your favorite
0: programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like Have you heard of quantitative fluid analysis? Commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the. Use of pharmaceutical grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8:30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404 9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week.
3: This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get seven to eight hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome back again to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we've been talking about a study showing that the more people that were at your wedding and the fewer previous romantic partners you had and the less sliding you do from cohabitating to uh, childbearing and household making and so on and so forth the better the quality of your marriage well the researchers say that when it comes to relationship experience they found that having more experience before getting married was associated with lower marital quality go figure having more practice doesn't turn out so well. well More experience may increase one's awareness of alternative partners, the researchers speculate. People who have had many relationships prior to their current one can compare a present partner to their prior partners in many areas, like conflict management, dating style, physical attractiveness, sexual skills, communication ability, and so on. Marriage involves leaving behind other options, which may be harder to do with a lot of experience. More relationship experiences prior to marriage also means more experience breaking up, which may make for a more jaundiced view of love and relationships. It's also possible that some people have personality characteristics such as liking to take risks, or being harder to get along with that both increase their odds of having many relationship experiences and decrease their odds of marital success. Analyzing new data from the relationship development study, they uh, looked between 2007 and 2008, more than a thousand Americans who were unmarried but in a relationship, and they were between the ages of 18 to 34. And then over the course of the next five years and 11 different waves of data collection, 418 of these 1,000 people got married. The authors looked closely at those 418 new marriages, examining how the history of the spouses' relationships and their prior romantic experiences were related to the quality of their marriages. The 418 subjects were reasonably representative of unmarried adults in the United States in terms of race and income. All analyses in the report control for factors such as race and ethnicity, years of education, personal income, religiosity, and frequency of attendance at religious services. And I think it's important to look at that factor because, of course, uh, in certain faiths, divorce is anathema and uh, are proscribed against. Now, past studies show that couples often quote-unquote slide into living together rather than just talking things out and making a decision about it. In this study, participants who lived together before marriage were asked directly if they made a considered decision about premarital cohabitation or just slid into it. They indicated their degree of sliding versus deciding on a five-point scale. The more strongly respondents categorized the move as a decision Rather than a slide, the greater their marital quality later on. Now that makes sense. If the couple is used to having serious discussion about things and making a considered decision rather than just letting whatever happen may, you could see where that would be correlated with better marital quality. One important obstacle to marital happiness is that many people now slide through major relationship transitions like having sex, moving in together, getting engaged, or having a child that have potentially life-altering consequences. Often these risks co-occur. For example, those who have multiple cohabiting partners are also more likely to have children before marriage and with more than one partner. Another way to think about this sliding versus deciding is in terms of rituals. We tend to ritualize experiences that are important. At times of important transitions, the process of making a decision sets up couples to make stronger commitments with better follow-through as they live them out. This finding could also simply reflect that couples who deliberately decided to cohabit are better at talking about important transitions in general, a skill that could help them build a happy marriage through better communication. Now, the whole having more guests at one's wedding thing, this is the biggest ritual in many relationships This is associated with higher marital quality, even after controlling for income and education, which may be proxies for how much the wedding might have cost. So they're saying they controlled for income, so it's not just about who can afford the biggest blowout. Now, among couples who had weddings, the sample was divided into those who had weddings with 50 or fewer attendees, then 51 to 149 attendees, or more than 150 attendees. And then among each grouping, 31%, 37%, and 47% respectively reported high marital quality. So you see, this is how they came up with the fact that you have more people at the wedding. Uh, Later on, you can look forward to higher Marital quality from a third with 50 or fewer people to a little bit more than a third with 51 to 149 people, and if you're lucky enough to have more than 150, almost half maintain marital quality. Now, in in this number of guests, it's a wedding factor. The study finds that couples who have larger wedding parties are more likely to report high-quality marriages, and one possibility is that couples with larger networks of friends and family may have more help and encouragement and support in navigating the challenges of married life. But this finding is not about spending lots of money on a wedding party. It's more about having a good number of friends and family in your corner. Now I have to say that, you know, this may be a statistical finding of the study they did on these 418 people who got married during the course of observing these thousand people, but of course there are exceptions. I personally know a couple who got married, just the two of them with the Justice and the Peace in 1981, and they're still doing great. So, you know, there are always exceptions to these things. And what about a couple who, yeah, they may have had multiple and numerous romantic partners in the past, but they finally eventually find the one for them, and they're happy. So, again, uh, while the researchers may have found some trends, these are certainly just generalizations, and there are always bound to be exceptions. The researcher's bottom-line advice to Americans hoping to marry is this. Remember that what you do before you say I do may shape your odds of forging a successful marital future. Well, I think the key here is it may affect it. It's not a definite. Well, if you want more information about this, you want to see for yourself what the information is, they do give a website, it's before-i-do.org. That's B-E-F-O-R-E dash I dash D-O dot O-R-G. These are dashes, not underscores. So it's org with uh, dashes before and after the letter I. All right. Well, next up on tonight's show going to try to work in a quick stress in the workplace update, showing that work-related stress is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes, right? We just talked before about how stress increases inflammatory proteins, which can lead to diabetes, so no surprise there. Well, work-related stress has a range of adverse effects on health, an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and now a team of scientists showed that workers under a high level of pressure and have little control over their activities at work face about a 45% higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes than those who are subjected to less workplace stress. They examined data from more than 5,300 employed people between ages 29 and 66. In the beginning, none of them had diabetes. And after about 13 years or so, about 300 of them had type 2 diabetes increase in work-related stress was identified independently of other risk factors like obesity, age or gender gender sorry. Now according to the data, roughly one in five people in employment is affected by high levels of mental stress at work. By that scientists do not mean that normal job stress but rather the situation is in which the individuals concerned uh, the rate, the demands made upon them is very high. And at the same time, they have little scope for maneuver or for decision-making, uh, little control over their workplace stress. The classic and oft-cited example of the person with a lot of work-related stress that they don't have any control over is not the person operating the jackhammer on a construction site. It's the person standing next to them, because at least the person operating the jackhammer knows when that awful noise and vibration is going to happen, because they're operating it. The person next to them has no control over over it whatsoever, so they're the ones with a lot of stress. Now, you can think of better examples outside the construction industry, but that makes the point very well. So there you go, folks. Those of you under a lot of workplace stress where you lack control need to take care of yourself, take stress-countering measures, else you're at risk for type 2 diabetes. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.